0: Before we dive into Revelation 21 tonight, I just want to mention this. Uh, Before Bible study tonight, Lisa and I had an opportunity to go by and visit Nancy Henry. Many of you know Nancy. Uh, She is uh, dying of ALS, and uh, she's in her last stages, if you will, of that terrible disease. And I just told her and Bob that I would mention them for prayer tonight. When we got to Bible study, Uh, she used to come when she was up to it uh, in a wheelchair. You've probably seen her at church on Sundays. Probably it's been a couple months ago now since she's been at church on Sundays or Tuesdays. But if you would remember Nancy, she is a believer, strong believer, knows the Lord. She knows she's going to heaven. But it's still really, really hard. And then, of course, her husband, Bob. Uh, hard on him and the rest of the family. So if you just keep Bob and Nancy Henry in your prayers, we'll we'll let we'll keep the church family updated. They certainly send their thoughts and prayers to you guys as well. They have not forgotten us. It's just they're in that season of life where it's just next to impossible to get out and, and to do anything. So she's pretty much bedridden at this point. So anyway, you think about Nancy just I know she would appreciate those prayers. Revelation 21. We, we come to the end of the book of Revelation. And tonight, these last two chapters, really God is, is teaching us about what the eternal state is going to be like. And like a lot of things in the Bible, God doesn't answer all the questions about eternity that we want to know. But on this side of eternity, He gives us glimpses, of what we need to know from his perspective about the eternal state that's going to give us hope, that's going to energize us, It's going to give us something to look forward to. Now, again, there's a lot of questions a lot of us have about the eternal state as far as, you know, what we're going to look like and are we going to be a certain age and all that. And the Bible doesn't talk about that. It does talk about the resurrected glorified body in 1 Corinthians 15, but it doesn't give us too much fine details about all that stuff. But here's what it does tell us, is that there's no other place in scripture where we learn more about what the eternal state's going to be like than Revelation 22 or 21 and 22. So, the other thing I want to point out is this. Revelation 22 and 21 or 21 and 22 is a break from talking about the millennial kingdom. In, in the last couple chapters, he talked about what that thousand year reign of Christ would be like a little bit. Again, not in great detail. Well, what he's going to talk about now is really beyond the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. It it is what it's going to be like after that thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. And one of the first things John says here in verse 1 of Revelation 21 is, "...I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist... And the sea existed no more. The word new there means superior in kind or quality to the old. So one of the cool things that God is teaching us here is that God always provides something better for those who believe in Him. And he's telling us and reminding us of that here even at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. He's saying, I've got something planned that's even superior. It's of higher quality. It's better than what you are going to experience now or ever could experience. In fact, it's going to be even better than the thousand year millennial reign of Christ because it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Because this earth as we know it and the heavens, if you will, as we know it, God's going to destroy it and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And the cool thing about this is just for a moment is that heaven and earth is not going to be tainted by sin or under any kind of curse or anything else. So, again, this is why it's so high quality and superior to what we know. And again, God doesn't go into a great detail, but the important thing is that it's going to be greater than anything that you and I could wrap our minds around right now. The principle, though, is something I want to land on for a moment. God always provides something better for those who believe in him. The key is we've got to believe, we've got to trust, we've got to have faith in God. And when we do that, the life that he promises, even Right now, is going to be better than what we think. For instance, there, there's a couple things in the Bible, many things that are sort of counterintuitive to our own flesh and human nature. When Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. Uh, the first in my kingdom is really last. Uh, the one who's greatest in my kingdom is the servant of all. And, and, and so, you know, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And, and so there's all these things like, wow, that, that's sort of upside down from the philosophy of the world. And you and I have to trust and believe uh, and have confidence in the word of God enough to be able to follow that life and know that that's better than what we could ever try to, in a sense, come up with on our own. And that's simply what we're being reinforced here at the very last book of the Bible. So notice uh, verse 2, I saw the holy city. I just want to weigh some words here. Holy means this city is distinctive in its character. Again, no sin, all righteousness. It's going to be a holy city. It's called the New Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I believe that the New Jerusalem is simply the capital city of the eternal state. It's not going to be the place that we always dwell because we're going to be able to move around God's universe in our glorified bodies. But I do believe that in the eternal state, that there will be sort of a headquarters, if you will, a capital city for all of us, and it's called, in the Bible, the New Jerusalem. Notice that this New Jerusalem, verse 2, was made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. It reminds me again of the words of Jesus in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also, So the new Jerusalem was made ready by God for us. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with him. Folks, there's a lot of great blessings coming to us, but I think the greatest blessing throughout eternity is going to be the full unhindered fellowship that we have with God. That's the greatest blessing. We have fellowship with God right now through His Holy Spirit, through His Word. But it's not full. It's not unhindered. You and I still have that sin. We still have that flesh that many times breaks or blocks that fellowship with God. But when we get to this state, there's not going to be anything blocking or hindering that fellowship with God. We're going to be in communion and intimacy with God like never before. And that's, again, to me, the greatest blessing. There's a lot of cool things coming to us. Uh, You know, glorified bodies, uh, wonderful place to live uh, for all of eternity, being able to worship and serve God. But the idea that in some way, God, because He's God, will be able to commune and fellowship with each one of us on a level that we could never understand now, to me, that's what's going to make, in a sense, heaven, heaven. Uh, To me, God himself will be with them is one of the key phrases to end the Bible with. Verse 4, notice, God is going to personally, and again, I I can't understand how he can do this to the millions of people that are going to be in eternity with him, but God promises to personally minister to each and every one of us. He himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore for us. Heaven. We can, we can sort of wrap our minds around heaven more by what's not there, at least at this point than what's there. And that's why God many times when he begins to describe the eternal state is going to tell us what's not there and death will no longer exist. Neither will mourning crying, crying, Or pain. I mean, pain is a part of life. So, again, think about a time throughout all eternity where there's not going to be any more pain. Any more cause of pain or anything. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's all going to be gone. For the former things, God says, have ceased to exist. The conditions and consequences of our present world are forever removed in the eternal state. And the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. Again, that word new means surpassing everything before it. This is going to be better than anything up to this point in our existence. Then he said to me, write it down because these words are reliable and true. God puts his guarantee on what he promises. He also said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And notice great emphasis here is placed upon the one speaking and his uniqueness. And then he says this, to the one who is thirsty, I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. That verse reminds me real quickly, just popped into my head, of this verse, you don't have to turn there, where Jesus is talking to the woman... At the well in John chapter 4 and says, Whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Well, God says in Revelation that to those who are thirsty, I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. I want to talk about the word thirsty because I want to also apply that to this day and age. The word thirsty here means one who painfully feels their want of something. I mean, it, it, it's the idea of hunger and thirst. And I, I get to a point where I'm, I'm parched. And obviously here in the context, he's not talking about physical thirst. But he's talking about, in a sense, that, that spiritual thirst that actually brings me to a point where I, I'm in pain. I want something so bad. And that kind of attitude, folks, is really the attitude that unlocks the fullness of our life with God. It's why Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's why the psalmist says that we should pant. Like the deer pants after the water, we should pant after God. That there should be that thirst within us that when we wake up every day, we in a sense are in pain because we know how much we need fellowship with God and how painful it is not to be in fellowship with God and not to walk with God. But this is why we don't see a lot of interest even from among professing Christians to really hear the Word of God and grow unlike you folks. Because really, when it comes right down to it today, there's a lack of thirst. People really aren't painfully feeling their want of God. And that's why they're not faithful to church. That's why they're not faithful to God's word. That's why they're not faithful to their relationship with each other, because they really don't feel. It's like, I got everything I need. I'm pretty comfortable. This is going pretty good. And they don't understand what they're really missing by not being in full fellowship with God as much as they can be on this side of heaven. They're not really thirsty. And spiritual thirst and hunger is something that you just can't put too high of a price tag on. To me, it's essential if you and I are going to continue to enjoy our relationship with God and experience fellowship with God and grow and mature to our full potential on this side of heaven. I think the question God, in a sense, was asking me as I came across this by His Spirit was, Jeff, are you really thirsty for me? Do you really wake up every day thirsting for God? Feeling the pain of, of want of something. It's a really important principle there that we are again reminded of. And then he goes on in verse 7, the one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. But to the cowards, unbelievers, detestable persons, murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic spells, idol worshipers, and all those who lie, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Verse 8 of Revelation 21 teaches us very clearly there is no such thing as universal salvation. That everybody's going to heaven one day. That's not what the Bible teaches. That may be what man wants to happen, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Also, notice that in verse 8, this verse also describes the eternal sinfulness of the unsaved. In other words, once they're cast into the lake of fire, they don't become righteous or good people. They stay in that sinful state for all of eternity. You and I get to look forward to righteousness, and we get to look forward to a glorified body, but to to the unsaved who never accept Christ, they live all of eternity in a sinful state. And then the concept of second death. Remember, the word death, in essence, just means separation. For us, physically, it means then death is the separation of our physical body from our spirit. Here, it means separation from God for all of eternity. And think about that. We, we talked a little bit about that earlier on in the book of Revelation. That, that that's the real thing. You and I... As believers are going to experience full, unhindered fellowship with God. But for those who reject Christ, they will live all of eternity separated from God. The very thing that makes heaven so wonderful is really what makes the lake of fire to me so painful and filled with torment. Then one of the seven angels, verse 9, who had the seven bowls full of the final plagues came and spoke to me saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me away in the Spirit to a huge majestic mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The city possessed the glory of God. Its brilliance is like a precious jewel, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. A couple things. Notice, this city as well as all of eternity, will constantly have and manifest the perfection of God. That's really what the glory of God is. The glory of God is a visible manifestation of His perfection. And in this eternal state, we're going to be surrounded by the visible evidence of God's perfection. In fact, he goes on to say, "...it has a massive high wall with twelve gates." with 12 angels at the gates, and the names of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel are written on the gates. There are three gates on the east side, three gates on the north side, three gates on the south side, and three gates on the west side. The wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Elam. So you can see here, both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints are represented. Old Testament represented by the 12 tribes, New Testament by the 12 Apostles, Verse 15, the angel who spoke to me had a golden measuring rod with which to measure the city and its foundation, stones and walls. Now the city is laid out as a square, literally a cube. Its length and width the same. He measured the city with the measuring rod at 1,400 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall 144 cubits according to human measurement, which is also the angels. The city's wall is made of jasper and the city is pure gold like transparent glass. Everything in eternity reflects. It is built that way by God to continually forever and ever reflect His glory. I mean, we can't even imagine how bright and brilliant this thing's going to be. But we're not going to need to wear shades we're going to have glorified eyeballs and we're going to be able to take it all in and i can't even really put into to the right words the immensity of this city if you take a cube 1400 square miles by 1400 by 1400 and it goes up as well as it goes out and deep and all of that it's an unbelievably massive city uh, to me, those that have done calculations say it, it, it can easily fit billions of people into to this space. It is that massive. and again it 's not the only place we 're going to be. To me it 's sort of our capital city it 's our it 's a place we can come back to every once in a while and hang out and then go to all the other infinite places in the universe throughout eternity. Uh, the foundations of the city's walls, verse 19, are decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras. the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates are twelve pearls. This is where we get the pearly gates from. But notice... These aren't like little gates and little pearls. Each gate is made from one pearl. What kind of oyster made that thing? That is going to be a huge pearl. The main street of the city, and here's where we get the streets of gold. The main street of the city is pure gold like transparent glass. Now, again, I I don't want to go into detail, but what John is describing is obviously a city of great splendor. I I mean, you and I can read this and go, wow, that's going to be really great. We we just don't even have any idea how wonderful this city that God has prepared for us is. Notice verse 22. I saw no temple in the city because the Lord God, the all powerful and the lamb are its temple. Notice heaven is God centered. Everything is about God in heaven. On earth, everything is about man and how great man is. In heaven and eternity, everything will focus on God. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God lights it up and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their grandeur into it. Its gates will never be closed during the day and there will be no night there because the glory of God will never be eclipsed by anything in eternity. They will bring the grandeur and the wealth of the nations into it. But again, notice it will be an environment of perfect righteousness. Because verse 27 says nothing ritually unclean will ever enter it or anyone does what is detestable or practices falsehood. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, before we go to chapter 22 and finish out our study, I do want to point this out. I have no idea why. But if you go back to chapter 21, verse 1, you will notice that in eternity, there's no more sea. No more water. I just have to say, I feel sorry for you all who really like to fish. (laughs) Because there's not going to be any fishing in heaven. And the Bible doesn't tell us why no more sea for all of eternity. But. No big ocean in the eternal state. So when we get there, maybe God will tell us why he chose that. I just had to throw that in. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, water as clear as crystal, pouring out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This water reminds us that God is the ultimate source of our satisfaction and fulfillment. And it's going to be that throughout eternity. flowing down, verse 2, it says, down the middle of the city's main street. And then he says, on each side of the river is a tree of life. Now, the word tree there really denotes a species or kind of tree. I don't think the Bible is teaching that there's just going to be one tree like this, but there's going to be one kind of tree, one species of tree like this, that produces 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Wow. I have a feeling that fruit's going to taste really good. And it reminds us that in eternity we will eat. Uh, In fact, even Jesus, after He rose from the dead, ate some fish uh, with the disciples on the seashore when he met them there so the bible does teach us that we will eat in eternity we just won't have to eat in order to stay alive we're just going to eat for the pure enjoyment of it (laughs) which can i just say i do that a lot now so we won't even go into the brownies okay we won't even go into that I do want to point this out, though, that notice in eternity, this is a really important principle, that even in eternity, creation will never cease to totally depend upon the Creator. The Creator is the one who provides the water. The Creator is the one who provides the fruit. You see, it's not like when we get to eternity that somehow we become beings who don't need God anymore. No, even even in our glorified state, even in a state of perfect righteousness, we're going to be reminded we still need God. The universe, in a sense, as we would know it, would just collapse without God. God, God still has to be there to provide and sustain and uphold everything. And even in that perfect place, we will be reminded of how much we need God and how dependent we really are upon Him. And then the Bible says the leaves of these trees are for the healing of the nations. I think the word healing is a very unfortunate English translation of this Greek word because the Greek word means effective service of the nations. You see, we're going to be serving God throughout eternity. And so one of the things that this teaches us is that God, in a sense, is going to, in a sense, uh, sustain us and energize us and strengthen us, even for the service that we're going to do throughout eternity, by the fruit that these trees produce. And there will be no longer any curse, verse 3, and the throne of God and the lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship him. Now, There's several different words for worship in the New Testament, and some of them just mean to adore God, to sing His praises, things like that. But there's also many times where the word worship means service, and here is one of those words. It is the Greek word latrua, where we get the idea of priestly service, being occupied with serving God, and that's how we worship Him. One of the ways you and I worship God is through service, and that is obviously taught here that one of the things we will do throughout eternity is serve the Lord. And then notice, they will see His face. Now, I know I'm dating myself here, but I couldn't help but think when I read and studied those words of the old Sandy Patty song, We Shall Behold Him. How many of you remember that song? Yeah, I know I'm going back a ways. Some of you don't even know who Sandy Patty is. She was one of the, what I call the original gospel singers that was popular back in the 70s. Anyway, she sang a great song called, We Shall Behold Him. And I can only imagine, as we've had other groups uh, write songs like, I can only imagine what it will be like to stand and see the Lord's face. His name will be on their foreheads. Again, notice verse 5. Night will be no more. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Notice also in verse 6 of chapter 22, again, God continually assures us. Because we may, you know, even reading this and even as a Christian, go, nah, that's just, I, I can't imagine. It's just... And the angel said to me, these words are reliable and true. This is really going to happen, folks, and we're going to be a part of it someday. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must happen soon. So Jesus. Look, I am coming soon, simply meaning his coming is imminent. It could happen at any time. There is nothing prophetic that needs to take place before the coming of Jesus Christ for his church. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy expressed in this book. I want to just touch on the word keep. It's a very important word in the New Testament. It means to continually reference or pay close attention to. It's the idea that just like the book, the book of Revelation, that it's almost like a compass or or a, a... A navigational tool that I need with me at all times. I need to continually reference it as I'm navigating life. That's what he's saying here. That as Christians, we are blessed if we continually reference and pay close attention to the prophecies expressed in this book. That's why ignoring the book of Revelation is so sad. Because God is saying this book and, and understanding the prophecy of this book and keeping them always before us is actually going to help us get through life. We do ourselves as Christians a disservice when we ignore the book of Revelation. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I threw myself down to worship at the feet of the angel who was showing them to me. He said, do not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and with those who obey the words of this book, worship God. Then he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy contained in this book. In other words, the contents of this book concern these things that are vital for you and I to understand because the time is near. And then in verse 11, God is simply saying that men do what they want to do. The evildoer will continue to do evil. The one who is morally uh, filthy continue to be filthy. The one who is righteous must continue to act righteously. And the one who is holy must continue to be holy. In a sense, what God is saying there is in the eternal state, this is, this is the way it's going to be. That the, the wicked apart from God are going to continue to live in their sinful state and, and the righteous are going to continue to live in their righteous state. Verse 12, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. And that word reward means an individual personal reward. Each one of us as his children are going to be individually, personally rewarded by God for what we have done in our body to bring glory and honor to him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are all those who wash their robes so they can have access to the tree of life and can enter into the city by the gates. And we all know that it's only through the pl- precious blood of Jesus that our robes can be washed. Outside of the dogs. Now, I got to say, I like dogs. So why does the Bible, you know, why does the Bible use dogs in such a derogatory way? Well, in Bible times, dogs were not the domesticated house pets that they are today. Dogs ran through the streets and were scavengers. And they, they ate garbage. And it, they were filthy animals back then. So he's simply saying, using that concept in their idea of dogs to describe outside all this wonderful stuff, There are those who, because they've rejected Christ, will not come in. The sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now again, please understand that the Bible clearly teaches that any and all of these sins can be forgiven through the blood of Christ. All the Bible is simply saying is these who have been involved in this never came to Christ to have their sins forgiven and therefore are paying for these sins rather than allowing Christ to pay for them. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Again, this message was for the churches. The local church is really important. When God wants to get His message across, He does it through the church. Even though the church today is is bashed, and even though the church today is is... It being ignored and it's not important anymore that, that Christians become part of the church and, and we can do you know our walk with God uh, apart from the church. That's not what the Bible teaches. And God gave His message to the church. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This morning star was the one that would rise up and tell us a new day was coming. And Jesus is simply saying a new day is coming. When I come back and the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who wants it take the water of the life free of charge. This is the last invitation in the Bible and yet there is at the very end of the Bible one last invitation to any individual to freely come and take what God offers free of charge. It costs Jesus everything, but it costs those who accept Him absolutely nothing. It's the free gift of God through His grace. I testify, verse 18, to the one who hears the words of the prophecy contained in this book. And here's the last warning of the Bible. If verse 16 and 17 is the last invitation in the Bible, verse 18 and 19 is the last warning in the Bible. And it deals with not tampering with the Word of God. He says, I testify to the one who hears the words of the prophecy contained in this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. God takes very seriously tampering with his word. Something else these verses teach is then, obviously, because Revelation is the last book of the Bible, that there is no continuing revelation from God today. All that we need is found in Genesis to Revelation. That's why it's very dangerous when you have cults or splinters of of religions or whatever who say, hey, uh, our prophet got a new revelation from God and we're adding it to this. See, Revelation 22 teaches very clearly that any future revelation after this in history, first of all, wasn't necessary. Everything that someone needs to know God, to live for God, and all that is contained in Genesis to Revelation. And and when you and I, or any human being, start to add to the Word of God, we take away the sufficiency of the Word of God. We take away its power. It's what Jesus said. It, 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 we make it no, not effective anymore. We take all the force of the Bible away when we start adding things to it or taking away from it. And so one of the final, if not the final warning in the Bible is don't tamper with God's Word. He takes that very seriously. Notice the last promise in the Bible, verse 20. The one who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. It is a solemn assurance. By the way, the word soon means suddenly, without warning. Some people go, well, Jesus promised He was coming soon. It's been 2,000 years. The Bible must be wrong. The word soon doesn't mean soon as in in time. It means suddenly. It means without warning. That's why Jesus always said, when I come, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Unexpected. Notice the last prayer of the Bible. Verse 20. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The last prayer. And then verse 21, the last verse of the Bible, the final word, if you will, of the Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. If there's a final word in the Bible, it's the word grace. Interesting, isn't it? That God ended with grace. And we define God's grace as His supernatural enablement. And that's why John is saying, May God's supernatural enablement, power, be with you all until Jesus comes. So folks, we've got a lot of cool stuff to look forward to. I have certainly enjoyed sharing the book of Revelation with you. But now we go on to 1 Corinthians next week. And let's close in prayer, shall we? God, thank you so much for giving us this great book, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Thank you, God, for unveiling for us, uncovering for us the glory of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's coming one day to rule and reign and then, Lord, to to be worshipped throughout eternity. Thank you, God, for the promises and the hope that you give us as Christians of what we have to look forward to, a a beautiful city beyond description, a beautiful place beyond human comprehension. But more than anything else, God, we have been reminded tonight that the greatest blessing throughout eternity will be the full unhindered fellowship that we have with you, that you yourself will be with every one of us in a way that we cannot even comprehend right now. You will personally minister to us. You will personally reward us. You will give us, Lord, some form of service throughout eternity. And God, we just thank You. Thank You for what we have to look forward to. May we remind ourselves even throughout the rest of this week that God, You always have something better for us if we will simply believe and trust and put our confidence in You. And that principle's true even right now. So maybe there's someone even in this room tonight that they're struggling right now. And yet, Lord, help them to just trust You because if they just trust You, what You have for them is better than anything they could come up with on their own. Anything something or someone else could offer them. That what You have ahead for them is always better If we'll just follow you, go with us, Lord, bring us back on Sunday that we might be able to meet once again. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. By the way, next week, we are starting a new series. I'm really excited about first Corinthians. So keep coming. We're going to have a good time in the word of God. Once again, first Corinthians starting next week. Sunday, we finish up the book of Galatians, and then the following Sunday, we start a short series uh, in the book of Romans, looking at some of the last couple chapters of Romans. We'll be letting you know more about that in the next couple of weeks as well. Folks, thank you guys. Have a safe trip home, and we'll see you on Sunday.